So we are in week number two uh, of this series called Hope in the Dark, which is based on this, on this uh, great book uh, by Craig Groeschel. He's a pastor in the U.S., as I mentioned last week. And um, we started it last week and, and uh, just wanted to start the, 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 the message today by saying thank you uh, so much. Most of you uh, were, were with, with us yesterday over at the hospital uh, where we were able to celebrate uh, Eliam's uh, first birthday. You know, he, I think he's 16 months old now, but, but his parents have been dealing with the situation, uh, as we all know, and as we've been praying for Alicia and, and the illness that she is battling. And so uh, everything, everything just changed so, so, so quickly this week. And this has been a, this has been a battle for the last year plus uh, for this family, and everything just changed, and just, it can happen, folks, and so her condition changed to such an extent that essentially the, the, the treatment is not working, and they can't treat it the way that they want to treat it. They simply can't treat it, and so things went just, just really, really difficult, difficult week for this family, and thank God uh, for some of the staff uh, in the hospital, and one particular nurse called an organization uh, that works with young people who are who are battling this illness, and they put together this amazing uh, birthday party for Eliab so that so that Alicia could celebrate and and have moments with with friends and with family, and you know I, I Simon Simon messaged me. I visited two three times this week and. And Simon messaged me, and he said, okay, we're going to have the birthday party. I said, great, when? Oh, tomorrow. <laughs> and, so, and so, of course, now with, with electronics, we're able to get the word out really, really fast. Uh, and just about every one of you were there. And if you weren't, you were kind of there in spirit and, you know, praying for them and, 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 and standing with them. And, you know, it's just, there's so much emotion, folks. And I'm so proud of you. you. You know, you come out and you and the room was filled with people, people standing in the hallway. I mean, ju- it just worked out. We had two guitars there and we, we sang and we prayed and we celebrated and it was just a wonderful, wonderful atmosphere. I can't tell you how proud I am of those of you and all of us really who are standing with this family um, and supporting them in this time of darkness. This is what the church is all about, my friends. Um, it is not about just the great moments in life. It is about the tough times and about having hope in the dark. So thank you so much. Uh, on behalf of the family who I think are watching right now, thank you so much for doing that. And continue, continue to stand with them. We continue to pray for them. I was talking with one lady before the service and, you know, kind of even in the middle of the night, you know, if God, if God kind of wakes you up in the middle of the night and you want to you breathe a prayer for this family and for Alicia, um, I, still, I still believe that in the moments when the door is shut, it is an opportunity for God. And here we have, my friends, an opportunity for God. Uh, so the series really speaks to, to, to a present situation that we're all dealing with. My, I'm so proud of you. You brought your kids. 
it's a powerful experience for young people uh, to, to love uh, when people are suffering and to, to get acquainted with suffering. Because let me tell you, suffering is a part of life. And those of you who have lived it, you know that it is a part of life. It comes and it, and it, it, it manifests itself. So thank you so, so much for, for being a part of ministry. That is ministry when you do what you did um, yesterday. So last week we talked about uh, how this, this issue, this is the biggest objection to Christianity that skeptics have say, how can a loving God, how can a loving God, how can you stand there, pastor, and talk about a loving God when you see this particular situation that we are all dealing with? How can God be good when God has the power to stop it, when God has the power to heal and he apparently does not? How can your God even be real if he is all-powerful and he is good and he allows this kind of suffering? It doesn't make any sense. It's the biggest objection to Christianity. It's the biggest challenge for Christians as well. And last week, we talked about how we need to distinguish between God and life, right? If you remember, two different things. Normally, we perceive God through our life experience. Our life experience is a very incomplete method of revelation. Your life experience could be good, could be bad, could be a mixture of both. It could be like an old Western movie. Remember those old movies, Spaghetti Westerns? There's one, it's called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yeah, and that, that sometimes life is like that. So if you're using that, as your only gauge to figure out who God is, my, 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 you are on, you are on shaky, shaky ground. Uh, we need to remember what God is good all the time really means. It's a saying we use in church all the time, or we used to. Uh, so we don't say God is good all the time because life is good. We say God is good all the time in spite of life. Whether it's good or bad, God is still good. In him is, is light. Uh, in him, there is no darkness at all, the scripture says. Uh, we need to admit that life is not always good. Sometimes we have a really hard time acknowledging pain and acknowledging suffering in life. Jesus acknowledged it, we saw. Uh, even Elisha the prophet experienced it, we saw. And we need permission to question. We need permission to doubt. We need permission to struggle we need permission to embrace at the same time. Uh, faith is challenged in pain. It's, it's something that people faced in the Bible. It's not just us. We had an example that we looked at last week of a, of a man whose, whose only son was, was uh, afflicted by an evil spirit for almost all of his life. And we looked at how Jesus ran into this situation and what happened and how this man said, you know, I do believe, but but uh, help me in my unbelief. And this is the, this is the cry of many of us, right? And we, we looked at this name, uh, Habakkuk, which is the way you pronounce this. We often say Habakkuk, uh, but it's Habakkuk, and it means to struggle and to embrace at the same time this little minor uh, uh, prophet in the, in the Old Testament. We call him minor because he's small. Um, so we're going to continue with that and start to take a look into uh, Habakkuk. I did a series last year on the minor prophets, and you can dig in our archives on our website, and you can find it 
Uh, we covered the book in, in one morning, but we're obviously breaking it down uh, for this series. So, so first and foremost, some observations about the, the first few lines of Habakkuk. Um, it is quite okay for, for you and me to ask God the hard questions of life. And many of you in, in this experience that we are sharing together, you have a lot of hard questions. You have a lot of, it's, it's disturbing. It's jarring. It's, uh, it, it causes you to perceive things all differently than you're used to. And it's, it's a shock. And this causes many, many questions to arise in our minds. And I want you to know that that is a good thing. This book, Habakkuk, is unusual for prophetic literature. And it is because all of the book is, is a, essentially a dialogue between this prophet and God. That's all it is. This is unusual for this kind of literature in the Bible. In the Bible, what we see when we talk about prophetic literature is this idea that the prophet is speaking on behalf of God. So the prophet says, this is what God says. This is what God thinks. Sometimes there's a little bit of prediction there. This is what God will do. So this is generally what we see when we look at prophecy in the Bible, uh, in particular in the Old Testament, but we do see it in the New Testament as well. And so this is what prophets did. Prophets weren't liked uh, because oftentimes when they're sharing the mind of God, it's, it's uh, whoa, it's strong. So they, they would say to Israel, for example, hey, you're, you're blowing it in the way that you're living your life. You have deviated from what God told you to do, he gave you the law, he gave you his, his moral and his ethical standard, and you all have deviated from it. And this is what prophets would do. They're a bit like preachers. And they would say to, they would often correct people. They would often challenge people. They wouldn't, they wouldn't make people feel good most of the time. They would make them feel bothered and disturbed. And what we have to, we have to, alter the way we're living our life now because this prophet says so primarily this is what we see so they do a lot of that they weren't liked uh they were often persecuted they they were often highly disliked by leaders because they would go to leaders and they would they would get right in their face and they would challenge them and they would often be persecuted as a result but habakkuk he doesn't do that uh, he's just having a dialogue with God, and God is talking back, and it is, of course, recorded for us. And he asks God the hard questions right off the bat. Uh, and by the way, um, for those of you who, you know, this whole, this whole situation, this ordeal uh, that, that this family is dealing with and that we're dealing with as a church, you, I'm sure if you have I'm sure many of us, all of us probably have questions, but if you, if you need a sounding board, okay, if you need, you need to, someone to hear, you need to hash it out, listen, I would, I would be honored uh, just to sit and listen to the questions and to try maybe to steer you in the, 
in the right direction. I would make myself available for you for that. Um, and uh, it's not easy. Uh, in, in, in pastoral ministry, you see an awful lot of suffering. Um, and maybe I'll tell you some stories uh, this morning to try and help you see the, the, the spectrum of it. Uh, but in any case, questions, questions, questions. It is okay to ask God the hard questions. This is what Habakkuk does. Um, because the truth is that faith is built up when we persevere through those questions and through those doubts. That's how faith is built up. Faith is not really built up when you get what you want all the time. Those of you who have children, did you give them or do you give them what they want all the time? Yes or no? Did you try doing that? Did you try to placate them and give them what they want all the time? If you did, you learned very quickly that you soon became the slave of your child. And you soon, well, you soon discovered, oh boy, this approach of giving my child everything that they want all the time, it's not, it's not a good approach. And, and when that happens, of course, the child gets upset and gets frustrated, but the child starts to grow, don't they? And, and so what happens in, in our journey of faith is that resistance and difficulty and questions and doubt and moments of just everything's crashing, what this does to faith if you persevere through it. And to persevere means you're going to keep on keeping on. You're going to keep pressing forward. You're going to, you're going to go through the motions if you have to. You're, you're just going to put one foot in front of the other. If that's all that you can do, you just keep moving forward. You persevere through those questions. You persevere through those doubts. And what happens? Your faith grows. So, so uh, Craig Rochelle tells the story in his book of how uh, he, he felt a call to, to ministry, uh, in particular in college, and he was uh, an athlete, you know, uh, a jock with, you know, tennis trophies, and he's a business major, and he felt the call to ministry. And uh, it started serving in a, in a church and working with young people, was a newlywed, and figured that it would be a good idea for him to get an education uh, that would lead him further in ministry. And so he went to seminary. Seminary is where you go to train for ministry, especially in the U.S., that's what they call it and around the world. And so he, he went to seminary. And in seminary, he, he, one of his classes, his class on New Testament, the, the professor who had more letters after his name than in the author's words that he had, he had tennis trophies, I mean, a very brilliant uh, man. He doesn't give the name in the book. I have a suspicion I know who it was, but he doesn't give the name. And uh, he, he said to the class, he said, it's time for you to learn the truth about the fairy tales that you have believed. He said, let me tell you what I think of this book, the Bible. And he threw it across the room in front of a classroom of seminary students. Imagine, that's intimidating. 
And so what that did for that man's faith was to shake it to its core. If this professor who's so learned and has so many letters after his name and who's a seminary professor says things like, look, the gospels that you read, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, Jesus didn't say most of it. Most of it is not said by Jesus. It's all added to afterward by all of these zealous scribes and, and uh, things like that. And by the way, all these letters of Paul that you, that you read, he didn't write most of them. And by the way, your book of Revelation is just some guy on an LSD trip uh, who, who wrote that. You know, those are the kinds of things that were said to him by a seminary professor when he's training for ministry. You say, well, how do they let a professor like that in the classroom? I don't know. But that's what he experienced. And he talks in the book about how his faith was jarred and challenged and, and just all in pieces. What if everything that I'm believing is not true? And so he talks about how through, through another professor and a, and a pastor who he trusted, he was able to walk into those doubts, walk into those questions, walk into those challenges, and come out on the other side but with a stronger faith, not a weaker one. And as I've often said here, I have a particular heart for young people, uh, our, our high school and CJEP and university students, because you are going to go through something very, very similar. You are going to be challenged. You are going to be told something very, very similar, even not in a seminary class, that, that all of this that you're believing is a bunch of nonsense. And your faith is going to be challenged and your faith is going to be hit hard. Now, will you persevere through those questions and through those doubts and through those challenges and come out on the other side or will you just give up? It's, the key is the perseverance. Listen to Habakkuk's complaints. Some people call them complaints. In some Bibles, they're that way. And you'll even see the word complaint uh, later on in the, in the, in the book. And, and he says this. Verse 2 of, uh, of Habakkuk chapter 1. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. It's ineffective. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Woo! That's some serious, serious questions. Can I remind you, this is a prophet of God? Uh, is he not scared that God will throw a, may throw a lightning bolt down and sort of smite him? Uh-uh, he just puts it right out there on paper. But these, these questions are hard. These questions are tough. How long? Why do you? Why don't you? And, and he's dealing with several issues there. He's dealing with injustice. He's dealing with indifference. He's dealing with violence. And to understand what his what his. Uh, frustration is with God, you have to go back and look at what he's living in. Uh, this man probably did his ministry in the reign of a king by the name of Jehoiakim. 
And if you go back to, uh, to the, the books of Kings and Chronicles, um, you are going to see who this guy Jehoiakim is uh, and what it would have been like for, um, uh, for Habakkuk. So to understand who Jehoiakim is, you have to understand who his father is, and you have to know a little bit of the history of what's going on in Israel at the time. You have uh, uh, a situation a couple of hundred years before where the nation split, and there's essentially a civil war in Israel. They're fighting against themselves, and you can, you can read the history and why that happened, and when that happened, everything starts coming off the rails, You've got a northern kingdom, you've got a southern kingdom, northern kingdom, they're all, every single king that you'll read in the books of Kings and Chronicles, every last one of them, all ungodly. They bring in all this stuff, all this idolatry, all this religion that, that was surrounding them and all these pagan practices. There's some of the things that they did and some of the ways that they worship these gods I can't even mention. They were so, whoa. And so everything went off the rails. Downstairs here in the south in Judah, not much better. A lot of the kings there were ungodly. The temple starts falling into disrepair and disarray. Nobody cares anymore. They're bringing in all this pagan stuff and these idols and worshiping all these gods and putting up all these idols all over the place. They're doing things like, I can't mention it. There's kids in the room. Everything just went off the rails completely, completely. And you see, there is one particular king of, of great note in Judah to the south, where Jerusalem is and where the temple is. And uh, the kids in the room will like this. He becomes king at eight years old. His name is Josiah. I, I, some people still name their kids Josiah. Wow, it's a, it's this, this dude, he's amazing in the, in the Bible. You read about Josiah. And you see that this guy, even though his father is as ungodly as you can imagine, and his grandfather is even worse. So Amon and Manasseh, you read about these two guys and whoa, just horrendous, horrendous, completely ungodly, violent, corrupt, deceptive leadership, awful, awful, awful. And this young boy becomes king at eight years old. And he, for I don't know how he has the presence of mind, but he institutes these incredible reforms downstairs here in Judah and even a little bit upstairs in Israel. And he, 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 he does things, he tears down all of these, these idols. He, it's a rather, it's a rather uh, aggressive revival that he brings in. Um, he celebrates the Passover for the first time in like, in like two centuries. They, they, they bring the Bible back into the thing. He says, we need to follow this book. Look what we're doing. Look at this disaster that's come upon us. Look at the way we're living. And he institutes these incredible reforms across Judah and in Jerusalem and in the temple. It's just like a, like a very, very intense, aggressive moment of revival that we see in 2 Kings uh, in 22 and, and 23. And uh, the, the, the text says there in one verse, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. And then this verse, nevertheless, the Lord did not, after all of that, did not turn away from the heat 
of his fierce anger because of the sin in the nation, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh, this is his relative, had done to provoke him to anger. And he basically says, you know what? I'm going to judge. I'm going to judge. I'm going to judge anyway. In spite of what you have done, Josiah, judgment is still coming. But he makes um, uh, a promise from uh, to Josiah uh, that he will, he will not live to see the wrath that is to come. And uh, we see that Josiah ends up perishing in mortal combat with an Egyptian king named Nico, uh, who is kind of uh, in cahoots with the, uh, I think it was the Assyrians. And it's just an awful situation, and he loses his life even after all of this revival that he brings in, if you're not too depressed yet. And so the king who succeeds him is a son of his by the name of Jehoiahaz. And Jehoiahaz only lasts three months, three months. He doesn't get impeached. All right, to use a, you know something that we're a little familiar with in this day, but he 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 only lasts three months, and this is because Egypt has control, and uh, Judah is turning into like a vassal state at this point. The Assyrians have already taken out Israel to the north. Everything is just an awful, awful mess. He only lasts three months. He's an evil king. Uh, the the Pharaoh there, Nico, puts him in chains. And then he levies this really heavy tax upon Judah, which is essentially kind of a vassal state now. And just in a ter- there's no leadership there. And so Nico is kind of using this, this, uh, this temporary king for a period of three months. And then he takes this, this pharaoh and he takes a man by the name of Eliakim, who's also a son of the good king who died, Josiah, if you're still with me. And he puts him as king uh, in place of this other fellow Jehoiahaz, who he now puts in chains. And he changes his name to Jehoiakim, the king under which Habakkuk is prophesying. And so uh, Jehoiakim will end up being a king for 11 years from 609 to 598 BC. And he does, of course, exactly what Pharaoh Necho tells him to do. He taxes the land. He puts a heavy, heavy tax on the people and on their land assessments and all of this. He's 25 years old when he becomes king. He reigns for 11 years. And the text says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. This is what Habakkuk is writing about. He sees violence. He sees injustice. Uh, he sees indifference. Have you ever seen those things? Have you ever seen violence before that seems to be unstopped by God, who we say is unstoppable? It seems to be unstopped. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever been the victim of violent crime. Um, I've been the victim of crime. It wasn't violent. I remember when our house was robbed. Have you ever been robbed before? It's not nice, is it? Uh, being violently robbed is even worse. Uh, but if, you've, if you even survey current events and you look around at the news, wow, violent crime seems like it's just unstoppable. And this is what Habakkuk is, is talking about. He's saying violence and you do nothing. 
Um, indifference. People are very individualistic. They're very selfish. They're very materialistic. They only look out for themselves. They're indifferent toward their fellow man. And God, you do nothing about it. You do nothing about the indifference. Why? How long? Why do you allow this? Why don't you change it? These are the questions that keep circulating over and over and over again in this man's soul. He sees all of these things and he asks God why. Um, just, just think about what, what's going on in our world now and think about what people, how people process this. Uh, do, do you know how many billions of dollars billions that the Marvel Comics Universe movie series has made? Billions of dollars. Uh, do you know the name of the, those, all that group of people? It starts with an A. It's called, yeah, they're the Avengers. What do they do? They avenge. They deal out justice. They punish the wicked. They, and sometimes they do it in a way that maybe people don't like, but in a, in a way, they are what we want God to do. And this is why we spend billions of dollars watching them, because we want to see justice, don't we? We want to see the wicked punished, don't we? We want to see good prevail, don't we? And so we will fantasize about that if we can't see it happen. And we will see there will be vengeance one day, somehow, some way. And you mark my words, my friends. You know, you've got, uh, what's her name there? Captain Marvel coming out in March. And then we all get to see what happens to Thanos in May. I bet you two-thirds of you in the room are going to go watch. So will I. Why? Because we're fascinated with justice. And we want to see exactly what Habakkuk wants to see. And we ask, why, 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 how long, why don't you, where are you, God? And these are the things that he is asked. Um, I need to, to, to put you on pause and give you, give you something positive to think about as we're in a lot of negative here. Remember the story I told you uh, last week about the baby um, who, who had that, who was born healthy, has a, has a brother who was born very disabled, and then the couple wanted a healthy baby. Do you remember that story? I told you you can listen to it. I told you there's a happy ending to that story. Let, let me give you a little bit of good news. Um, you ask how long, you ask why, you ask. I remember, I remember when the, the family uh, had this, this little baby on life support. She was a month old. Her name is Sophia. And... Um, and Nothing was working. I mean, the only thing that was keeping her alive was the life support. They essentially started using terms like brain dead. You ever heard that term? Very harsh term to hear when you're a parent. And uh, so they basically said, you know, what we're doing to her is invasive. We, are, we, are, we have to use invasive measures, and it's painful for her to keep her alive. And they explain this to the parents in, in great detail. And the parents of this, of this, uh, this girl, uh, this little baby, one month old, um, they came to a place of decision where they said, you know what? If God is God, and if God is going to heal 
Well, then let him heal because we don't want to hurt our baby with all of these procedures. If God, if God is not going to use natural means to heal this baby, then there's only one way. He's either going to do a miracle or he's not. So they came to a decision where they thought, well, the doctors are recommending to us, let, let, your, let your baby pass away in peace and stop in, in this invasive procedure because you're just prolonging the inevitable. And I remember the, the, the phone call. Uh, and they called me, and they were concerned, and they said, Pastor, is this right? Is this okay to do? Is there something wrong with this? This is what we feel. And if God is God, and if God wants to heal her, let him heal. If God wants to take her home, let him take her home. Uh, but we feel like maybe this is the best decision. And I remember when the, when the doctor got on the phone and spoke to me and said, you, you, I've explained this to the family, and I'm, I'm going to explain it to you. In 24 to 48 hours, she will pass away. She will pass away naturally. It will not be painful, and she will pass away. And so the family said, we're going to trust God, and we're going to let her go, and we'll see what happens. And so, well, they said 24 to 48 hours, so not even 24 hours. I was back at the hospital uh, and, and thought, okay, uh, this, is, this is the last time I will, I will see this baby. And uh, the doctors have told me. So when you hear it from them, it's like it's lights out, right? And so they said that to me, and I went, went into the hospital and went to the place where I thought I was supposed to go, and they said, oh, no, no, she's over in this room. I said, but that room is not a room for people who are going to pass away. Anyway, I thought, okay, just went to the other room. I walk into the room. I won't soon forget the sight. I see the baby's grandmother. She's got the little baby Sophia in her arms. There's no life support, and the baby's eyes are wide open. I looked at it, and I thought, uh, and, and I'll never forget, the. well, won't soon forget what the grandmother said to me. She said, Pastor, don't say anything. <laughs> so when grandma says that, you obey, Yes. She said, Pastor, don't say anything. And I just didn't say anything, just looked and smiled. And, uh, you know, it was a short visit. And then I went back, I think, another time. And nobody, friends, nobody could figure it out. The doctors were stunned. The baby just got better and better and better. Nobody could figure it out. When doctors start tossing around the word miracle, you take note, yes. And the baby got better and better and better. Now, I just need to tell you, for whatever reason, this wasn't, a, you know, 100%. She was completely like, and she's completely normal. She, she's behind, you know, in many, many things. She's behind and all that. But she, she lives. She lives. And they gave her a death sentence. And she lives today. Her name is Sophia. And she's a beautiful little girl and... You know, that, folks, there's an answer. There's an answer to these questions. Um, so anyway, it's okay to ask them. We ask them. Our culture asks them. Our soul asks them. Uh, next observation for you, okay? It's really easy, but Habakkuk, he was not God. He's calling out to God. He's got issues with God. He's frustrated with God. He's angry with God. But he recognizes very, very obviously that he is most certainly not God. 
So let me ask you, what if he was? Let me ask you, what if you were God? How would you handle things? What would you do? How would you organize things? How would you run the cosmos? How would you deal with the reality that, okay, you created everything. You created humanity in your image with the, with the ability for great, wonderful things, the ability to love and to be loved and to make a difference and to create and to worship and to all of these things. And yet you see humanity who you love and who's created in your image go off track and do things that are, that, and, and are, do things that are evil and do things with their own free will that you gave them that cause destruction and cause pain and cause death. What are you going to do about that if you're God? Well, I'll tell you what I would do. I would snap my little finger just like Thanos in the Avengers, and I would wipe everybody out. But that's me being God. Aren't you glad that I'm not God? Aren't you glad that you are not God? How are you going to deal with that problem? How are you going to deal with the problem that sin and suffering and decay and disease and death are in the world that you are in charge of, that you have to manage and you have to wrestle with this well? I've got to deal with the free will and I've got to deal with this decay and I've got to deal with this sin and I've got to deal with this suffering and I have the ability to wipe it out in an instant. But I don't create robots, but I want to, re I want to redeem creation somehow, but I have to find a way to do that, don't I? Now you see a little bit how hard it is to be the sovereign king of the universe. This is not an easy thing, my friends. And yes, 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 we have many, many questions, but I am so thankful that we are not in charge. I am so thankful that it is not us who's governing all of this stuff because we don't have the bandwidth. We don't have the morality. We don't have the ethic. We don't have the intelligence. We don't have the capability. We don't have the character to do any of that. We cannot do that. We must trust God to be God to be God in the end, to be God in the beginning, to be God in the middle, in the good and the bad and the ugly. We must learn to trust him. Even if we have all of these questions, if we were God, we would do a much worse job. Much, much worse. We need to learn something else. Listen closely to me. God is not fair. And I put that in quotes. God is not fair. By our standards of fairness, okay, by God's standards of fairness, he's completely fair. But by our standards of fairness, he is not fair. It is not fair for a person who is innocent to suffer with disease. That is not fair. My friends, I have done funerals for infants. Do you know how hard it is to put an infant in a casket? And lower that casket into the ground. I remember one funeral that I did and it was so cold outside. It was like minus 25 outside. And this little baby had passed away. I think it was from what they used to call sudden infant death syndrome. If you've heard that term. 
And this baby passed away very, very young. I think first couple of months of life, as I remember, it was, oh, got to be 15, 16 years ago. And I remember doing that funeral. It was the first funeral I ever did. There would be more after that with this little, this tiny little casket. It is so discouraging to do that. When you put life in the ground that way, my friends, and you, and you witness that and you see that. And I remember putting that casket in the ground in the minus 25 degree weather. And we were waiting. The families were waiting for the grave diggers to come and cover the casket. And they weren't coming. It was so cold outside. People went and got in their cars and started their cars and turned their engines on just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then finally people were so frustrated they got out of the car and they picked up the shovels themselves and they covered this casket to give this baby dignity and to give this family dignity in their suffering. And when you see that over and over and over and over again, you start to realize that fairness, from our perspective, we don't, we, we say things are not fair. And from our perspective, God is not fair. We say that is not fair. It should be the wicked people who suffer. It should be them who struggle with disease. It should not be good people. It should not be innocent people. It should not be the godly that is not fair. And by our standards, God is not fair. Did you ever stop and think that life was not fair to Jesus either? And God was not fair to Jesus either. So uh, he's completely holy. He's completely, completely holy. That you, the likes that you and I do not understand what that is. He is completely, completely holy. And yet he is beaten to a pulp, mocked, spat on, and crucified in shame for guess who? Ungodly people. And you see in the, in the, in the narrative that we commonly read it at Easter there, and we see Jesus praying at the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's in agony and his soul is in agony. He's in utter agony, so much so that he sweats drops of blood. And he cries out to his father, if there's another way, take this cup. He uses the term cup from me. And he, and he, and he, and he says to God in submission, not my will, but yours be done. And he faces a brutal and painful and excruciating. That's where we get the word from, from crucifixions, death. Wow, that is so not fair. Um, I challenge you to watch Mel Gibson's rendering of this in The Passion of the Christ. And I often mention the movie here. Do you want to see something unfair? You watch that movie. That's so unfair. But we need to thank God that he is not fair. Because if God were fair, None of us would be here, my friends. None of us would be here. We would have been wiped out by his holiness long ago. We need to thank God that he is not fair from our standpoint. Another observation for you. God gives us, listen closely to me because you're going to be stunned by this. God gives us more than we can handle. Some people say God doesn't give us more than we can handle and they think that's in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. What's in the Bible is uh, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will always provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. 
It doesn't say God will not give you more than you can bear. It says God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a doorway, a way out so that you can get out of that temptation. But this is, this is not speaking about suffering, my friends. And oftentimes in life, the sense that we have, and we're right to sense it, is that God gives us more than we can bear. Do you know why we feel that way? Because it's true. And because that is what causes us to trust him more. When we have that experience, I cannot bear what is going on. This is too much. How can this happen? You, you do not know the, the, the background. You do not know in this situation we're dealing with as a church. You don't know Simon and Alicia and their background and where they come from. If you did, you'd probably say, how can that be? How can God allow? It's one thing after another, after another, after another. How much can one person handle? How much can one person take? It's more than we can handle. It's often more than we can handle. Because this is what causes us to trust God. Don't trick yourself into thinking, well, you know, I can handle it, I can handle it. No, you can't. No, you can't. You must depend on God who can, um, even when you are suffering. And true trust in God. We often boast about our trust in God and sing about our trust in God. True trust in God is when you can submit to him fully the fact that you're suffering. And you can hand it to him and trust him fully. When you can't come to that place where you fully acknowledge and fully surrender that pain to God. And you're looking for a magic bullet to find a way out. That's not true submission. That's not true, true trust. You're holding back. When you drop it all to God. And when you cry out to him and say, I give up. I cannot handle it anymore. That is the place where you know that you fully trust God, even in the pain. Otherwise, as the author says, his word's not mine in the book. He says, you know what happens when we're not doing that? We're actually using God. We're not trusting him. Wow, strong words. Uh, his, not mine. Now, in the text, and we'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll wind up with this. Um, God does give a response. He does give a response, but... It's a big surprise to Habakkuk. Um, you know, oftentimes we have expectations and we have perceptions of how God is going to answer. And it's very, very different because our perception of how God wants us to live is often askew. Uh, the author quotes C.S. Lewis and he says it this way. I'm not sure that God wants us to be happy. Wow. I think he wants us to love and be loved. But we are like children thinking our toys will make us happy and the whole world is our nursery. Something must drive us out of that nursery and into the lives of others. And that something is suffering. This is C.S. Lewis, the great writer of, of the 20th century. Wow. That is a different way of thinking about life. Hmm. Something must drive us out of the nursery and that something is suffering and that will make us serve others and that will make us love others. God responds with an answer to Habakkuk's question. 
Ooh, but his response, well, we'll look at it next week because I don't want to depress you too much. You can read it yourself. Uh, it's right there in the chapter, and it's a very strong response and a very unexpected one, but just food for thought, God responds. God gives him an answer. God doesn't sit there silent and say, I'm not answering your question. You need to repent. You need to stop doubting. You need to have faith, and you need to get your act together, Habakkuk, or I'm going to remove your mantle of prophecy from you and give it to somebody else. No, he doesn't hurt him. He doesn't punish him. He answers him. The answer is, you'll see next week. But it is, it, it is quite an answer. But can I tell you, friends, struggle. Struggle. Keep struggling. Keep persevering. Because oftentimes, more, than, more often than not, God will give you an answer. It may be totally, totally not what you expect. You may not like it. You may spend more time questioning even after you get it. But he will give it to you. He knows what he's doing. In the end, we need to let him be God. We need to trust him and we need to let him be God in all of it, in all of the mess, hope in the dark. It's the biggest objection. It's the biggest challenge that we have as Christians. Would you